If you're like many people I know, you've seen reports of fires, floods, heat waves, windstorms, and other extreme weather events fill your news programs, your radio stations, and even your social media feeds. The images are harrowing, whether they come from the soggy streets of South Korea, the sweltering plazas of Spain, or the brutal aftermath of the inferno on the island of Maui. Of course, that's just it. There are images to document the disasters, motivating donations and relief efforts. When homes and businesses are lost, there are calls to rebuild. When lives are lost, we see pictures of the victims in happier times, juxtaposed with those of sorrowful families clinging to each other, searching for solace. We're urged to work for greater public safety through more resilient infrastructure, better evacuation plans, and even changes in our consumption habits that will ease the burden on our delicate infrastructure. But what about when disaster occurs, not in fiery spectacle, but silently, invisibly? What about when it creeps insidiously past locked doors? What about when, instead of killing overtly, its menace is carried over years or decades? What about the disasters that play out in front of an audience of none, save those whose fates are cruelly twisted by something unavoidable, and at times, undetectable? Well, something stinks in Porter Ranch, and residents are fighting mad about it. Yeah, they say SoCal gas has been polluting their town with a foul smell for weeks. CBS 2's Lori Paris tells us they fear something even worse than the stench. The smell has been really strong, really pungent, smells like rotten eggs. Susan Gorman Chang's nose is telling her something is wrong in Porter Ranch. Residents reporting like burning eyes, nausea, fatigue, shortness of breath. Since October 23rd, Gorman Chang says her neighborhood has smelled bad and her family's been afraid of going outside, of simply breathing. Ever since SoCal gas crews discovered a leak at one of the natural gas storage wells at its Aliso Canyon storage field. Sometimes, disasters don't take the familiar forms we expect. Sometimes, they sneak up on us, invisible and silent. Sometimes, they steal lives without so much as a whisper. And the worst part of these invisible tragedies is that they're too often caused by our neighbors. Bad neighbors, that is. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and this is science. When I moved to Simi Valley from Los Angeles, a suburban community just across the county line in Ventura County, I heard several people mention the name Rocketdyne. They'd usually drop the name when I mentioned which part of town our new rented house was in. The greater L.A. area was an aerospace industry hub for decades, so it wasn't like the word rocket caught my attention. What I did notice after a few weeks, however, was how many people I met in Simi Valley would mention relatives with cancer, followed inevitably by the name Rocketdyne. I started asking questions, and were my eyes ever opened? 
The idea that a nuclear meltdown occurred at the former rocket testing and nuclear site nestled in the Los Angeles foothills in 1959 and was deliberately covered up until 1979 for 20 years. That was shocking to me. California, of all places, I then believed, would hold polluters to account. I had no idea how many bad neighbors there were and still are, even now in our supposedly scientifically aware age. The decades-long battle between citizens who believe their loved ones' cancers are tied to radiation from the former Rocketdyne facility, now known as the Santa Susana Field Laboratory and owned by Boeing, is the tip of an iceberg that touches all parts of our modern lives. Invisible threats to our health, homes, and livelihoods are more than just threats in countless communities across the United States. Scientific breakthroughs have led to much better understanding of the dangers of various substances, and these impact our daily lives in more concrete ways than rockets or nuclear technology might. Bad neighbors who contaminate everything from the way we heat our homes to the way we clean and sterilize our medical equipment are making tens of thousands of Americans ill. This type of pollution may not grab the headlines like nuclear reactor meltdowns or birds covered in oil do, but that means we have to work even harder to hold these bad neighbors responsible. Southern California, my home for the last 15 years, is also host to numerous invisible hazards. One of them made international news briefly at the end of 2015. I say briefly because it's very hard to capture a news audience for long when the images coming from the site of the catastrophe are just rows of orderly suburban homes with tranquil mountains behind, the whole picture set against the brilliant blue sky of autumn in California. Except for the concerned news anchor in front of the camera, there was almost nothing for the viewing public to see. No twisted wreckage of a downed plane, no sky-high flames from a raging fire, and certainly nothing to feed the old news adage of, if it bleeds, it leads. In October 2015, the community of Porter Ranch in the San Fernando Valley north of Los Angeles experienced the largest natural gas leak in United States history. Over 8,000 residents living near the Aliso Canyon underground natural gas storage facility were evacuated after the leak was discovered. This was the second largest facility of its type in the United States. Initially, residents of Porter Ranch believed the source of the leak was a home. It took several days after locals reported illnesses and smelling gas for SoCal Gas, the company responsible for the site, to admit a gas leak was in progress. Senior energy analyst with UCS's Climate and Energy Program, Julie McNamara, explained what natural gas even is. Natural gas, also referred to as fossil gas, Methane gas, or just gas, is a fossil fuel, like oil and coal. Um, it's derived from organic matter, like marine microorganisms that were around hundreds of millions of years ago. And then over a lot of time, under intense pressure and heat, it transformed into what we now think of as fossil fuels. 
So today we access that gas mostly through drilling um, and gas either comes up alongside oil or on its own. And then we use it throughout the economy as a source of energy, including in the power sector for electricity, in homes and buildings for cooking and heating, in industry, and even as a transportation fuel. Natural gas is actually comprised of multiple components, but the primary component is methane, which is a very potent global warming pollutant. Gas is also odorless on its own, so to alert people to leaks, gas companies add an odorant, which gives it that rotten egg smell. Okay, so lots of methane in natural gas, and it's a fossil fuel. Got it. But you may be wondering, if it's natural, isn't it safe? We've seen a big push towards quote-unquote natural products in everything from cleaning supplies to granola bars. So what gives? What are natural gases' effects on people and the planet if it's naturally occurring on Earth? Natural gas is naturally occurring, but that does not make it safe. Moreover, there is nothing natural about the ways in which we extract gas, process gas, and transport it all across the country. Nothing. And there are harms introduced at every point in that process. So consider extraction. There is an enormous amount of waste that's created from the drilling process that can lead to toxic harms in the surrounding communities. Same too for public health, from drinking water pollution to air pollutants that are released. And then we have to consider the harms that come from combusting gas, including inside our homes, but also from power plants that are burning gas for electricity generation. One of the primary pollutants that comes from that process is nitrogen oxide or NOx emissions, which can be really harmful to public health, especially to respiratory health. And then finally, there's climate. Methane, which is the primary component of natural gas, is a very powerful global warming pollutant. In fact, it's over 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period, which means that whenever there's a leak throughout the gas system, it results in a very large carbon footprint, even more than that from CO2. That makes sense. But if natural gas is so bad for the planet, why are there buses with the words clean natural gas plastered on their sides? Many people were, and still are, under the impression that natural gas is better for the planet than its fossil fuel sibling, coal. Julie filled us in. Methane emissions are a major problem. Methane is very potent as a global warming pollutant, which means that over the near term, it is threatening to put our already very ambitious climate targets increasingly out of reach, which means that natural gas's biggest problem is natural gas. And this wasn't the case for a long time. Natural gas was considered the, quote, cleaner of the fossil fuels compared to coal. But once we started to get a better understanding of just how much methane emits from the extraction to the processing to the transport all throughout pipelines, it started to become clear that, in fact, natural gas had no climate benefit compared to coal. All right, let's dive into Aliso Canyon itself. I asked Julie to give us a brief primer on the Aliso Canyon leak I mentioned earlier. So Aliso Canyon is an underground natural gas storage facility located near Los Angeles. And in October of 2015, it suffered a catastrophic system failure, which ultimately resulted in methane being released from the facility. There were multiple attempts to plug that leak, 
But ultimately, it wasn't until February of 2016, so more than 100 days later, until they finally plugged the leak. In the time between, an enormous amount of methane was released on the order of over 100,000 metric tons, as well as a lot of public health harms. So 8,300 families had to be relocated during that time due to safety concerns, and thousands of people reported suffering from headaches, dizziness, nausea, and respiratory problems. The facility was ultimately reopened at a much reduced capacity um, and with multiple additional safety protocols in place. But I think it really opened people's eyes to the harms of these types of facilities and the harms that come from being stuck on a gas system. That tracks with my experience during the leak. One of the student researchers my research organization was working with had to evacuate her home. Her parents, siblings, and dog were all trying to keep up with work and school obligations from the crowded confines of the Marriott Hotel in Burbank, several miles from their house. She was stressed, tired, and confused as to why more wasn't being done to fix the leak quickly. It was a huge disruption to her life, but fortunately, she wasn't sickened by the effects of the leak. I asked Julie how, if natural gas is actually truly harmful to both people and the environment, how did it come to be called natural? That seems calculated to elicit a particular kind of response in gas consumers. Yeah, so it didn't just happen that people welcomed a harmful combustible gas into their homes and considered it clean, natural, and safe. This is the outcome of decades of fossil fuel industry lobbying and PR work. Decades. An enormous amount of money went into this process. And it's really notable because today, even though there are routine, life-taking, catastrophic explosions from the gas system, all of this research about the harms to public health from its use in our homes, still people think of gas Why would we use if it wasn't safe, if it wasn't clean? And so those associations are really hard to break. And that makes it hard for us to transition to clean energy. But I think people are starting to really become aware of this information. And we're seeing this growing movement of how to move away from gas. What are the alternatives? And still, that association is a bear to break. Okay, so massive PR effort from the fossil fuel industry. I'm not surprised, considering all we know now about the scale and breadth of their deception when it comes to climate change. Still, I'm an eternal optimist. I wanted to know what we can do to move away from natural gas, and Julie had some great insight. Over the past decade, it's become increasingly clear just how much methane is leaking from throughout the gas system as well as how harmful gas is to our public health in all the ways we use it, including combusting it inside our homes. And so we need to transition away from gas full stop. That's really a two-part process. The first is while we're still using gas today, companies have to be held to account for reducing the harms of the system. So that means being held to high standards for plugging leaks and stopping the release of methane throughout the system, as well as installing pollution controls to try to limit the harmful health pollutants as much as they can while they can. But it's just the case that no matter how much work goes into it, gas is not clean, it is not safe, and it is not part of the climate solution. 
So we have to be fully uprooting and unwinding all the many ways it's used throughout our economy. There's just no other option. And so just take for one example how we use it in homes today. We have solutions. We have better alternatives to gas. So consider stoves and ranges, right? Here, we have major advances in induction, electrification cooktops. These are great resources as a way to swap out a gas stove and bring in clean electricity that's highly efficient. Same too for furnaces and hot water heaters. Heat pump water heaters and heat pumps for heating and cooling buildings are vastly more efficient and they bring none of the public health harms. These are these exciting clean energy solutions that don't just help take gas out of the system, but also make measurable improvements to people's everyday lives. That's excellent. We can't eliminate all harm in the world, but we can reduce it significantly by adopting clean energy solutions. I appreciate Julie giving us that little bit of positivity. Let's continue our tour of bad neighbors from nuclear contamination to the West, the natural gas blowout in the north central part of LA San Fernando Valley, on over to the east side of that valley, and Silmar. This bad neighbor is different than the other two I've mentioned because the harmful effects of their work are an everyday thing. No specific disaster has happened here to date, but that doesn't mean our next harmful substance has a safe history by any stretch. Tens of thousands of people in the community of Silmar are exposed to ethylene oxide, a gas most have no idea even exists, on the daily. As is so often the case when it comes to pollution and hazardous waste products, the people most likely to be harmed are lower-income communities of color and those with higher percentages of immigrants. I asked Daria Minovi, senior research analyst with UCS's Center for Science and Democracy, to give us a rundown about what ethylene oxide is. Ethylene oxide is a colorless gas largely used to manufacture other chemicals that are used to produce pesticides, plastics, even antifreeze and other products. It's also very effective at killing microorganisms, so it's also used to sterilize medical devices. In fact, about half of all sterile medical equipment in the U.S. is sterilized with ethylene oxide. One other thing that I think is often missing from this conversation is that ethylene oxide is also a petrochemical, meaning it is made from fossil fuels. So our reliance on this toxic chemical in many manufacturing processes also inhibits our ability to transition away from fossil fuels. That got me thinking about harms again. I looked at a report that UCS put out earlier this year and saw that the LA region doesn't just have the one ethylene oxide emitting facility in Silmar that caught my attention. There are nine in SoCal, with two different hotspots, where two facilities are close together. What does ethylene oxide do to animals and people? While animal studies do show harmful effects of ethylene oxide, what we're really concerned about is its impacts to people. Breathing ethylene oxide that's emitted into the air over a long period of time has been found to increase people's risk of developing certain types of cancer, such as white blood cell cancers, as well as breast cancer in women. This is particularly of concern for people who live, work, attend school near a facility that uses ethylene oxide. Short-term high-level exposures 
usually among people who work in these facilities, can also cause stomach and breathing problems. In general, there is no quote-unquote safe level of exposure to ethylene oxide. Wow. No safe exposure. That doesn't sound great. These facilities are located right in the middle of everyday life for millions of people. Daria broke it down even further. Workers in facilities that use ethylene oxide, of course, face that greatest risk of exposure, both to short-term high-level exposure as well as just chronic exposure um, through their job that can increase their risk of cancer. At the community level, though, kids are especially at risk. Ethylene oxide is a mutagen, meaning it can damage a cell's DNA. Children's cells are dividing more rapidly than adults do as they grow, so they are more susceptible to cell damage that can increase their risk of developing cancer. It's also worth noting that, like many air pollutants, there are disparities in ethylene oxide exposure. In an analysis that we published earlier this year, as well as an EPA's own analysis of this pollutant, we've found that people of color, people with low income, and people who speak English as a second language are disproportionately exposed to ethylene oxide. That certainly sounds like the areas in L.A. that surround ethylene oxide-emitting facilities. Just from driving past these places, I've observed that they're somewhat industrial and commercial in terms of businesses, with street vendors and taco trucks nearby. They're busy, functional places where work gets done, and there are lower-income neighborhoods not that far away. It certainly looks like tens of thousands of people either work in, live in, or transit through the areas every day. Still, I didn't know that these facilities existed— There's no way that everyone who is potentially affected knows about the danger. Many people may not even know that a facility that uses ethylene oxide is in their community. One of the first most important steps is understanding these risks. If you do have a sterilization facility or chemical manufacturing facility in your community that uses ethylene oxide, you can contact your state or local health or environment agency and ask how they're requiring the facility to limit its emissions or if they require air monitoring of these facilities. Some places like Southern California or the city of Laredo, Texas have or are in the process of setting up ambient air monitors near these facilities. These so-called fence line monitors, which are set up near the property line of the facility, are one very important way to see what people in the surrounding community might be exposed to. Once we know what the risks are, then there's a lot more information that your state or local agency can act on. Well, Fortunately, it sounds like there's increasing awareness about this invisible danger. I know many of you listening to this show like to take action. And of course, knowledge is power. With our newfound knowledge about ethylene oxide in mind, I asked Daria for info about what you can do to help protect your local communities from the harms caused by ethylene oxide. If you're wondering whether you have one of these facilities in your communities— You can check out our report, Invisible Threat, Inequitable Impact, which includes an interactive map of where ethylene oxide sterilization facilities are located. You can also contact your EPA regional office for more information about facilities that emit ethylene oxide. While the comment period for several proposed regulations for ethylene oxide emitters have closed, 
EPA has not yet issued final rules for most of these, and you can still contact the agency's air office or your regional office if you're concerned about ethylene oxide in your community. It's still important that they hear from you in the time that they're writing the final rules. In the meantime, you can also contact your state and local health or environment agencies asking what they're doing to monitor these facilities and ensure emissions are not harming public health. We love some concrete action here at UCS. I also love it when we can distill complex concepts like invisible bad neighbors down into something that's easy to understand and share with anyone we meet. To that end, I asked Daria to leave us with a key takeaway about ethylene oxide. One thing that folks should be aware of is that while ethylene oxide is very effective as a medical sterilant, safer alternatives exist. Other substances such as hydrogen peroxide have proven safe for medical sterilization and should be approved for use immediately. It cannot be enough to try to regulate emissions of this toxic chemical. We need to talk about phasing it out as much as safely possible. Particularly when it comes to medical device sterilization, there is a deeply troubling irony in the fact that we use a cancer-causing gas that harms the health of certain communities to ensure that medical devices are safe for others. And, of course, I couldn't neglect to do the same thing for our old pal, natural gas. Julie left us one for the road. If there is one thing for people to know about gas, it's this. Natural gas is not clean, and it is not safe. It's bad for the planet, it's bad for public health, and most of all, we don't need it. We have clean energy solutions in hand today. Well, there you have it. Millions of people across the country are currently subjected to silent, invisible, and potentially fatal chemicals. Because of the willingness of corporations to continue business as usual instead of adopting cleaner, greener solutions that improve public safety and reduce environmental impacts, people are suffering. I chose the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles as focal points for this episode because I go there every day. My current home is not close to the Rocketdyne site, Aliso Canyon, or the medical equipment sterilization facility in Silmar, but literally tens of thousands of people's homes are. There is nothing more critical to our nation than the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we grow. If one part of the system is polluted, eventually we will all suffer. It's all connected, and we cannot wait until we see disaster on our doorstep. As we've learned, sometimes we can't even see it coming. I urge you to read the report Daria mentioned on our website. Go to ucsusa.org slash resources slash reports to read Invisible Threat, Inequitable Impact and use our interactive map tool to see where ethylene oxide facilities are in your state. You'll find case studies on nine states and Puerto Rico, plus downloadable fact sheets and data. The report is also available in Spanish. Please share this information with anyone you think could benefit. To answer the question in today's opening song of, if there's something strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? Well. The answer is the EPA and every state and local health and environmental agency, you can. We all have to work together to make bad neighbors clean up their acts. Special thanks to Julie McNamara and Daria Minovi for sharing their expertise. Thanks also to Brian Middleton, Omari Spears, and Rich Hayes for production help, 
and to Anthony Eyring for the multimedia magic. Today's music was by Ray Parker Jr. and Poddington Bear. Until we meet again, science fans.